Welcome to the Experts Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thanks for listening. On May 30th, 2020, the Palm Beach County Medical Society held its third webinar dealing with issues of mental health following the pandemic. This time, we talk further about the issues related to physicians and to everyone else. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the mental health COVID-19 discussion, Palm Beach County Medical Society. I'm Brent Schollinger, joined tonight again by psychiatrist and colleague, Dr. Abby Strauss, and we have special guest, Dr. Stefan Pasternak. Stefan is a board-certified psychiatrist and psychoanalyst. Stefan has been an integral part of our physician wellness program here at Palm Beach County Medical Society. We'll be here looking at some of the mental health ramifications of the COVID-19 pandemic. Stefan, tell us how you got involved with the Physician Wellness Program. Many years ago, I was starting a psychiatric hospital, the first one at Georgetown University Medical Center back in 1974. And we knew we had to succeed or they would take the beds away because we had had a battle to get the service. And so we were all working insane hours. And for about eight months, uh, everything went perfectly well. Then more and more people began to get backaches, headaches, have accidents, fall down the stairs, start to make mistakes. And I began to realize myself that I wasn't sleeping as well. I was having more worries about success. A psychiatrist I knew made a serious suicide attempt, and I was hospitalized. And I began how we were different. And she had trouble acknowledging that she was stressed out. There was a lot of denial and did not recognize her own emotional needs, was working insane hours, like she wanted to sort of corner the market in Montgomery County. And so she had groups and she was supervising people. In other words, she was dramatically overextended because she had grossly unrealistic expectations of herself, which is a problem of physicians in general. So I began to look at what are the problems that physicians often have? And, you know, some of what makes us great hurts us. The Hippocratic ideal, the desire to sacrifice for patients, the willingness to go the extra mile, the attention to detail, the willingness to stay late or work more hours in order to take care of more people. And so those things create a vulnerability to moral stress. And what we're hearing right now is the problems that physicians feel when they don't have enough equipment to take care of the patients, when they feel they might be infected and infect other patients. And the preamble to that has been in the managed care world, the moral stress that comes when you have to lie to get an MRI or put in a fake report to get a specialty drug that you shouldn't have to fight for. So there are many aspects of moral stress in this epidemic, and that is a serious amount of pressure for physicians. What I sense among some of the colleagues I've been talking with is just the feeling that the organizations were not giving them the support they needed, especially in nursing homes, where there was an effort to deny that there were cases popping up. That seems to be getting less and less. Fortunately, society is now giving the doctors some attention, but there still is a feeling that they're not getting all that they need, and they worry about bringing this home to their families, which is a huge worry. 
our physician wellness program here in Palm Beach County. Has that been active at all in terms of professionals related to the COVID pandemic? As far as I know, it has not. Those who have, those who don't know about the program, we just say a word. We have funds and we have a panel of therapists who can provide six free sessions for any member of the medical society who accesses the system. It's a very simple system to access. It's completely confidential. The therapists do not report any information back to the medical society or to anyone else, and they submit charges that the medical society pays for the first six sessions. And then if a physician wants to continue, or a medical student or a resident, they can get free services. They don't even have to pay dues. They just have to join the society. It has been underutilized. When I ask students at FAU about it, they're all interested. I said, well, would you use it? No, we, we don't really think it would be confidential. We can't take the time off from our rotations. But there still is a lot of denial of the emotional needs that physicians have. Doctors, the problem we all have right now is we're all victims too. It's not like we're treating someone who has an illness and we're separate from that threat. We're under the gun as well. So we have to be watchful of our anxiety and it can show up in different ways. So we're hoping that the wellness program will at least heighten awareness of the burnout, stress, especially suicidal ideation and how dangerous that can be. It's a great resource, so I think we need to go out of our way to continue to let our members know that this is available. And speaking of physicians who had some problems, I'd be familiar with this case in New York City this past week. This was yes. an emergency room doctor who took her own life. She was actually medical director of emergency department at the New York Presbyterian Allen Medical Center. She contracted COVID. She went back to work after 10 days. They said no, you're not ready yet, sent her back home. She went to spend some time with her family. Her father is a retired physician in Virginia, apparently. She told her father she was really bothered by the fact that she'd been seeing so many dead patients, dead before they could even be taken out of the ambulances. Apparently, on the surface, she was a pretty active, well-adjusted person. The, the, in the articles I read, she was an avid athlete, a skier. She was deeply religious. She volunteered at old age homes. What happened here that, that she took her life? Emergency doctors are used to tragedies. Why would this be something so difficult? What do, what do we think was going on here? We don't know a lot of the details, and I certainly am taken back by her loss, but we also don't know if she also had a psychiatric problem going into this. It has to be recognized, but I wonder, and here's the questions, and maybe we can use these as beginning points to talk about other things, especially emergency room doctors. They're used to trying to help. They're used to trying to be there and fix as much as possible. And she couldn't fix, and she couldn't even fix herself. So the question is, is this also being seen in a lot of other doctors? Maybe they're just keeping it within themselves. They're drinking too much or there's some deterioration going on elsewhere. Is she simply symbolic of the larger problem? As tragic, and I saw when they interviewed her family, it was just not good. It just was not good. But is this symbolic of what's happening and maybe has not yet risen to the point of adequate concern amongst the entirety of those who are doing this level of work, this hands-on work. I, I, I don't want to do a psychological autopsy on somebody that we don't have the data, but it raises the question. There's two aspects to this. First, we all know that 
a successful physician, you have to be on the compulsive side. So you overwork, you pay attention to detail, and you're accustomed by the application of decency, compassion, and medical science, we usually win. People who come into the emergency room go home. This is an unusual exposure to death and horrible death, choking death by people who are alone. Then there's the second thing you have to keep in mind about suicidal ideation. It's like septicemia. Once it gets started, it can take on a life of its own. Usually, long before a person has conscious suicidal ideation, they have unconscious manifestations, nightmares, insomnia, psychosomatic ache and pain. And one of the other things is our syndrome of burnout and also loss of meaning. The meaning of being a physician is to save lives, and you can't. You can be disconnected from your purpose, for your reason of being. And so suicidal ideation can lead to a sense of frantic helplessness and a brief psychotic state where you lose reality testing and you think all is hopeless. It's at the stage when people are starting to have insomnia and going to work tired and beginning to lose hope. And that's the preamble when we have to make sure they understand now you need to talk to somebody, a friend, a pastor, anyone, so that you don't deal with these feelings by yourself because then they become toxic. From a preventive point of view, what steps would you recommend? First, I think every hospital ought to have ongoing process groups. That is, all the doctors, uh, before they leave their shift in the emergency room or during a week, once or twice a week, time set aside where they can all get together and talk. How are you doing? What's going on? How are we feeling about this? So you can begin to see someone who may be slipping. So there's that. During this crisis, there does need to be more opportunities made available for people to get individual private sessions paid for by the hospital or the organization they work for if they can. I think if those two things were there, they would at least have an earlier warning system when stressed out that they're not having a chance to digest this and to make sense out of it. There is a sense of existential absurdity here. What meaning does life have? And so keep reminding people of. And one of the variables is a lot of physicians are afraid to confess, so to speak, that they're having a problem for fear that the Board of Medicine will have some sort of regulatory complication, and they may hesitate to announce to anybody that they're not doing well, which is not really fair, and there's a lot of discussion in the states with the boards to mitigate that. There are also organizations that will help someone without it necessarily going before the board. What Stefan is talking about is very much to the point, how do we get someone to acknowledge that they need help and then go to the appropriate place rather than try to do it by themselves and then end up in trouble one in one form or another. It's complicated. It's multi-layered. It's complicated. It's the psychology plus the regulatory environment in which we live. Still a lot of stigma on a mental health diagnosis opposed to diabetes or she has hypertension. The mental health label is a whole different stigma. Which is why I like the group approach. Because if everyone on the three to 10 shift or whatever was going to process what happened on that shift, Mrs. Jones died, she died alone, they would then be talking and sharing their grief and their feelings of misery. 
and they wouldn't be isolated. And then it doesn't have to be reported because they're not being diagnosed with an illness. They are working as part of a team to maintain functional effectiveness. And this approach works on assembly lines where people get together to solve problems and how they can improve Many years ago, when the malpractice crisis was at its height, in the District of Columbia and some other surrounding areas, we had malpractice discussion groups. It made it possible for people who didn't have to come in and say they were being sued, but a lot of doctors were concerned about it. So it became something that was offered. And if you wanted to drop in and sound off and bitch, unfortunately, busy doctors don't have time to go to lunch with friends very often. They don't get out of the office. Or if they're in the hospital, they're certainly not going anywhere. Their issue would be to get the hospitals to have more timeouts for docs and nurses, but they're so overwhelmed. The harsh statistic is that on an average, the, in the United States, we lose from suicide roughly 400 physicians a year. Yeah. And it looks like that may be going up because statistics are always a few years behind. That's huge, and that's under non-coronavirus stresses without the overlap of the political issues of thinking. I might have been able to help this patient if I had more material. Right. And it, it, it reverberates back and forth and back and forth. So I'm very frightened for many of our colleagues. I think some of them, I think we're stronger than we realize, but we're just human. And there will be days when we just get fatigued and say, you know what, no one else cares. I can't do it anymore. And if it just ties in with an undercurrent of some psychological propensity to this, it, it's not a very scientific term, but it can be very messy, very messy. Yeah, and some of this would be preventable. The cheering for the troops makes them feel better. Yes. These things where heroes work here or maybe there needs to be a nurse's day every week or the best doctor of the shift or more stuff to show people that their sacrifices are appreciated. Now, I was talking with one patient who was working in a special facility and was sleeping in the garage because she was so afraid of bringing this terrible virus home. And, and so then a 10-day period of work time went by. She had hardly any sleep. You know, I was worried she was going to have a car accident because she's driving and working like hell and seeing so many people die. So how do you show enough appreciation to offset the despair and the demoralization that nobody really cares whether I live or die because she wasn't sure if her family would get treated, if she got sick and brought it home. And so the organizations could do a lot more to say to the doctors and nurses, if any of your family members get ill, we will ensure that they get proper treatment. Steph and I, I agree with you. I, I, hey, I saw a video. What they do at one place is they play the, have a Rocky alert, whatever, a stroke alert or whatever. And that is yeah. when they're discharging a COVID patient. And everybody runs down and lines up along and claps as the COVID patient leaves the hospital. That's great. I agree with that. I think it's wonderful to applaud that the coronavirus folks are getting better. But it's also our obligation to remember that people are being discharged because their heart attacks were captured and other people for other reasons. Let's not forget them. 
And I think that's happening. Well, I was in the hospital and I had a, a aneurysm or whatever. I'm healthy. Why didn't they applaud me? I was as close to death as anybody. It's our responsibility as a profession not to forget the other patients. Thank you, Richard, for stepping in there. We have Megan Arnett, whose hand's been up for <laughs> now unmuted, and uh, join the conversation. Thank you so much, and thanks for having me yet again. And I just love interacting with you guys. It gives me a sense of hope. But I just wanted to tell everyone, I prior to this meeting, I was privy to attend a telephonic meeting with Louis Frankel and other people from Palm Beach County, senators, etc. And there was one individual that was very outspoken and welcomed during the whole meeting, and that was a spokesperson from 211. And so I just wanted to share that with everyone because you can be anonymous. You can be a doctor. You can be a nurse. You could be just a regular patient. But they are standing by a girl by the name of Sharon. If I had her information, I'd tell her thank you. But she was very outspoken by saying anybody at any time can call 211. They have counselors standing by to just talk to people, help them work out their issues anonymously. So I want to share that with all the listeners and everybody else. 211, it's like a crisis mental health hotline. And many psychiatrists and other people are probably already aware of this. But 211 is another resource for people to go to when they are in need of mental counseling but don't want to actually go somewhere. I have to hear that because I have several patients who are widowed, living alone, afraid to go out. They call me. I try to speak to them as much as I can but can't do it every single day. And so now having that 2-1-1 number, that's another good resource. Thank you. You're very welcome. Thank Louis Frankel. She keeps referring to her website, all the information that we talked about at the town hall meeting, telephonic town hall meeting, is posted on her website. She has plethora of information, not just about mental health, but about other things as well. And she kept referring back to her website. So Louis Frankel. If you go on our website, not just information about 211, but other information as well, 211 is definitely a resource you can refer anyone to for anonymous counseling. Thank you. Thank you. Going back to what we were talking about specifically, physicians having difficulty during this time. So we, we think of the ones who are overworked or in this ultra stressful environment. But what about the other side of the coin? There's a lot of Physicians whose offices are closed because of the pandemic situation. And they've been sitting around basically doing nothing for the last month or so. There's a whole other level of anxiety and stress and other fallout. I think that that is another source of misery. And I have a number of things that I've recommended to physician friends and a few physician patients. But first, you got to take stock of yourself every day. What kind of shape am I in? Second, just because there's social distancing and you can't go to your office doesn't mean you have to be isolated. With the Zoom, as we see here, you can have family meetings, collegial meetings, group studies, all sorts of things. Next, you have to have a daily schedule. You get up, do some exercise, take a walk, plan some activities, do a little bit of social interaction, read a book, but you have to have a schedule so that you maintain structure Structure anchors us to a sense of this is still a real world. This is not all twilight zone. 
And then there are relational problems that come up when you're stuck at home. You and your spouse are not accustomed to being there 24-7. And these are some of the more gripping problems that come up. So I suggest a number of things. One, have realistic expectations of yourself and your spouse. No one can be everything to each other. So give each other a break. Next, make sure you talk every day to manage problems. Problems still come up with kids or mortgages or getting the air conditioner fixed or one thing or the other. So people have to keep talking how they're feeling so they don't feel ignored. Next, physical affection is the lifeblood of relationships. So a hug, a kiss, some praise. Doesn't have to be the greatest sex of the day, but it has to be, I care about you, we're still together. And then, above all, when you're sitting around the house, de-escalate. Nothing is worth fighting about right now. What I try to get across to people is you're trying to fill the space with fighting, but then you feel worse because now you're unhappy with each other. So don't take it out on each other. Find ways to sublimate this. And, and now time to do some gardening. I spent some free time shredding years of old records that were no longer needed. My shredder is getting exhausted. But I'm trying to have a schedule for myself when I'm not seeing patients every day. And then, of course, there's the financial worry. And Brett, you were saying something about the financial loan program and how miserable that was. What's the story there? Is that any help for doctors? There's all kinds of programs out there. I think there's a lot of additional frustration because physicians and others will fill out all the paperwork or send it in online and then never hear anything. Abby, you were... Uh, oh, I've been so your frustrated. Experience. I applied for the payroll protection program, the PPP, and it's all, it's very different. And so there's the HHS system and the PPP system. The HHS system is many of us, not all of us found money in our accounts because Medicare paid a percent of how much money we made in 2019 and showed up in my account one morning. I said, whoa, this was an accident. Now there is a second run to give more money. And I filled out the forms. Why not? I don't know that I'll get it or not. It was impossible. For the payment protection program, after I filled out the forms the first time, there was no upload button. And when I called my brother, he had the same problem. Then what we found out that the entire program spent all the money in like three or four days. And then I got a thing back and said, thank you. You filled out the form. We'll get in touch with you. A week later, it said, your form is incomplete. And I didn't know why. Well, that's because I found out, can't verify this 100%, but I, that since it was the second bill, all the loans essentially had to be reapplied. So I did it again. And then today I got another notice said, it's not complete. Then in one line is that if you did send this, ignore this, but I don't know if it's complete or not complete. I've spent more time on hold and emails trying to figure out, and you can fill in the blanks of how frustrating this is. It's a problem. So a whole additional level of frustration. But, Abby, you are one of the lucky ones if you got that money from Medicare up front because those checks are going to whoever the Medicare checks usually go to. So if you work for a corporation or a hospital, as a large percentage of physicians do, they will never see that money. Last night with the operations that manages a practice that I do some work with, and uh, when they opened it up, 
to questions after the CEOs did all their talking when they opened up the questions. The first thing was a doctor screaming and yelling, what the heck did you do with that 6.2% of my money? And they had some lengthy explanation. Oh, we're using that to keep the office open so you still have a place to work. You should be thankful for that. So another level of frustration. But Very quickly, I was told if it's at all possible just to put that money in a savings account because the chances of being audited are still there. And it has to be that those are revenue losses that were directly related to the COVID virus. Now, is the fact that I had to buy systems and do a lot of stuff on television, I call it television, telemedicine, those costs, that's a result of COVID. A lot of companies don't lose because of COVID and therefore they may have to give it back. It is, so, I don't know what I'm doing. So I'm taking it and putting it over on the side. And my wife is actually dealing with this at a hospice and she's putting together a template. If it goes through their legal and accounting people, that's going to show how to divvy up so that if I am audited, I don't want to be audited. You know, please. I, I just well, don't want to. Look at it as another project, and this can be part yeah. of it. Yeah, it's, it's endless. Definitely. It's endless. It's terribly frustrating. There's a, there's a silver lining, perhaps. Anyway, back to yes. the, uh, the mental health issues specifically, though there are various frustrations and stresses that come out of these uh, economic dealings. Take a step back and look at the general population. We've been talking largely about physicians and health professionals and how they're affected by COVID. So question I have for you guys, what kind of stories are you hearing these days? What kind of patients are you seeing? Yesterday, I had to do a Baker Act by telephone. How did that go? It tore me up. There's a gentleman who had a severe stroke, willed himself back to walking, God bless him, but he lives alone, and what made it work was the physical therapy, the pools, and all that sort of thing. And for a couple weeks, and he's had a prior psychiatric problem, that goes without saying. But he called up and said, I'm in pain, the physical therapists don't come to see me anymore, and he thanked me for all the work that we did. That was hard. So I spoke to the daughter, this and that. Anyway, I ended up talking to the police and he was sent by Baker Act to a hospital in Broward County. And I don't know what's happening because the hospitals don't call us. That's that subject for another day. Oh my God. It was, this, is, this man had life in him and the isolation got to him. And it was just emotionally, I mean, we did what we had to do. It was hard. But I did the right thing, I think. I really hope I did. I, it's, you know, you never, those things bother you all over and over. Anyway. Yeah, I'm trying to get across to the patients. That anxiety is a normal reaction to this very abnormal circumstance. And what they have to distinguish here is a reasonable amount of anxiety. This is a mysterious illness. We don't know where it's lurking, what elevator button or doorknob could possibly make us sick. So all the precautions, gloves, face masks, etc., are reasonable and necessary. And 20 minutes of worry a day isn't enough. So I try to get across to patients, only worry 20 minutes a day. And as soon as it starts worrying machine, now you have to worry about worrying. Because more worrying about what's going to happen isn't going to make you better. It isn't going to end it. It's just going to make you nutty. Next thing I get across is don't obsess with CNN or Fox. Limit yourself to one or two programs a day, and that's it, because 
by the end of the day, nothing earth-shattering is going to happen. And it really doesn't matter if the death count has gone up or down in Palm Beach County on a day-to-day basis in terms of where you are and what you have to do. The next thing is to distinguish back from fearful fantasy. One woman was complaining that she was washing her hands and her apartment and scouring the counters so much that her hands were starting to bleed. I said, well, tell me about that. And I said, did you leave the apartment today? No. Did anyone come into the apartment today? No. Did you bring mail or a newspaper or a bird fly in the window? Anything come into your apartment? No. So why are you scouring all the the shelves and, and the countertops? There's no contagion. The idea that you should wash surfaces, yes, that makes sense. But if nothing's changing, the virus isn't going to fly in the window. Now, maybe in New York, where the inoculum in the atmosphere is so huge that you get it just by walking down the street, which could be possible. But high-rise apartment in Palm Beach County, I don't think there's too many virus particles out there. So I try to get them to make a distinction between fact and fantasy. And then there is physical symptoms. I have some patients who have hypertension, so they need a blood pressure cuff. I have some patients with a history of smoking or asthma, so I suggest that they get an oximeter. You check your oxygen saturation level, but at least it's something you can do. So then when you call your doctor, you can tell them what your blood pressure is and your pulse, and you can tell them what your oxygen saturation is. You're giving them some constructive information. And God forbid those things are really out of whack, then you know you need to do. And then this person who calls me about three times a day, I had to say, you have to be careful because there's only so much clonopin you can take in the course of the day. You're going to fall over, especially if you're 70 and you're on five other medications. So people, you know, change the medicine. I try to keep that minimal because it's not a good time to be changing drugs when the stress is so severe outside. But if they need to, call 911 and have the medics come and check her out. Three days ago, this woman I was just talking about did call 911 at my suggestion. They checked it out. haven't heard from her since. We have this 211 number. That's good. And the other thing, there is a Calm, which is a app, and HeadSource, which is an app. Down Dog Yoga is an app. You can do yoga exercises on that. And there's one other thing, but UCLA Mind. UCLA has a program Let me read them again. Calm Anxiety and Stress has a special kit for COVID. Headspace Meditation has free guided meditation. UCLA Mindful is another resource. I just hook people up with those things. Anxiety, anxiety, anxiety. And now when, instead of calling me, they can do the app that will help relieve their tension states. I've had suggested to some patients You have a car, get out of your apartment, drive to a parking lot, meet a friend, and talk from car to car. Zoom with some neighbors. We've had some across-the-street cocktail parties. So you see a face and cheer each other up. Those are some things I think that can help break the cycle of despair and loss of control. Helplessness is toxic. I so agree with you, and I think those apply to a very large number of people. I have been troubled about the physicians, the nurses, any, any, any of the first, what they call them, the, the first responders or in the hospital, that right now they're heroes. 
after the pandemic is over, the demoralization that may come as they become just employees again. This scares me. They're going to say, I sacrificed this, I did this, I did that, and now I'm just another employee. And there's nothing special. And my insurance has been cut or my salary has been cut or, or, or whatever. I'm not trying to be the, the pessimist, but I think that as a profession, we need to prepare. And I hope I'm wrong. Oh, my goodness, do I hope I'm wrong. But I fear that Medicare is going to come back with all the same restrictions on telecommunication, that they're going to come back and audit us to the point of, well, you did this for 30 minutes and not 31 minutes. And that was a tension, huge tension that doctors brought into the pandemic. That's one of the reasons of the burnout that Stefan talked about. I just hope that preparing for it, because it, again, I'm going to use the word demoralizing, it could be yeah. horribly demoralizing. My, uh, my son in Elmira, New York, is in his last month or two of internal medicine, and he's going to do a GI fellowship if they continue them because they don't know about the COVID situation. But he said it was, he's directly across, living directly across from the hospital. He said the same day they laid off more than 20% of the staff, they put up signs saying, heroes work here. Hmm. Uh, I agree with you that's a concern, but that's the third wave. And I'm not ready for that. Okay. Just so, the second wave to get you. I tried, I tried to think about what I have to do in the next couple of weeks or months. That it will be back in November and maybe worse. So we should be thinking about that. If we help the docs right now survive and not kill themselves or give up, then we'll be able to deal with the third wave. I agree with you. But no one knows. That's the problem. Will Medicare now revert or will they say we want more telemedicine? We don't know if this is going to change the practice of medicine. Hell, what do I need an office? The American Psychiatric Society today, I'm I'm sorry that I don't remember, a, a group of senators have written a letter to Medicare asking that we do not snap back to the old way that if they are going to do it, there's transition. And as an outpatient doctor, I know that a lot of my patients are very concerned. And even though the Medicare rules may snap back to the old ways, they don't want to come in. So that puts me in a situation of having to practice medicine against Medicare's rules. These are the thoughts that come to me. So I'm sharing them. Yeah. And I want to ask Richard a question. Why would the hospital laying off people? There was no elective surgery or? Well, actually, what's happening in the hospitals is that, like in Florida, the hospitals are only half full. Normally, they're 90% full. The ICUs are only about half full. And other rib beds have already been set up. Basically, the hospitals are starving for medical activity. So they have to lay off people that were there taking care of patients. Surgery suites were adapted to be ICU beds in some places, but that's basically what's happened. I've been listening to a podcast called The Doctor's Lounge, some also some other podcasts. So it would make sense for them to resume elective surgeries, for example. Yeah, I just talked with, we just had a rotary meeting with, I joined a Rotary Club in Georgia where I'm moving. The CEO of the hospital is a member. He arrived about the same time I did, and he said their income is down 50%. They have about a 55, 60-bed hospital. They converted a brand-new telemetry unit into all ICU beds, anticipating that they'd be busy. And, you know, yes, they've had about 200 positives there, but they've only had one or two hospitalizations. 
Now, actually, they have maybe five patients in the hospital who are positive and needed to be hospitalized. The whole place is shut down, and this is a rural hospital that's a nonprofit, and it's not tax-supported. So what happened in New York is scared everybody, and they forget they're not in New York. And therefore, what Burks calls a granular approach, knowing what's going on in maybe different zip codes or different rural areas, Maybe those hospitals should be open for elective surgery right away. And part of the problem, no, this is such a unique phenomenon that no one knows what's the best thing to do, which is scary. And on top of that, as, as Abby referenced, even on an outpatient basis, it may take a long time before patients are comfortable coming back in. They're going to put off a lot of these procedures even in, in the hospital level. If it's elective, they may think twice, again, with the whole mentality that's out there. So it's not like one day they're going to flip the switch and say, okay, everything's back to normal. And even if they were to say that, I, I don't think the public is going to respond that quickly. So there's still going to be some long-term economic fallout. Stefan, we were talking last week about one of the big areas of uncertainty is the chronicity of this pandemic. It's not like a hurricane, it comes, it goes, and we rebuild, but it's a whole different factor. There are different models. If you look at what happened in Haiti, for example, where not only did they have catastrophic earthquakes, but then a hurricane, they had never recovered. And then you look at what the health workers who went there found out over time, and the same thing in Indonesia, where the tsunami which killed 200,000 people and obliterated almost all facilities. And so we are right now in an initial stage of heroic coping, and no one knows exactly how to make best use of the ICU beds. But our initial response to this has been to rally, and we're getting government to be more responsive. We're cranking out masks. GM is making ventilators. I mean, things are ramping up. So you have a feeling that we are going to win. But as we hit that peak, this is not going away. We may have fewer cases over the summer, but according to the infectious disease people I hear, like Fauci and Burks, they all assume that this is going to ramp up. And how bad it will be will depend on what happens as lockdowns and shelter-in-place things are loosened. Interesting articles by Insight on the fact that normally in a bad flu year, our our death rate, overall death rate in the United States rises to a level of around 20. I don't know what that is, or 100,000, whatever. And uh, this time, the overall death rate actually was less until very recently, barely got up to where it was the average of the last few years. So although older people are dying from COVID, the lack of activity is saving the lives of younger people. You know, they're not dying in, in work accidents or car accidents or that sort of thing. I'm still sure that people seem to be confused about death certificates, and you may have to put in COVID positivity as part of the reason for death. It may or may not have been the absolute reason that person died. But The thing here is that with influenza, even in a bad year when you have 45,000 deaths, most of these people are not in the intensive care unit for long, and they don't make their doctors and nurses sick. If you get the flu, you've already probably had a flu shot. So you're going to maybe have a few miserable days. You're not going to go home and infect your family and everybody's going to run the risk of dying. That's what makes this so different, that there is no yet built-up immunity, even though 
the common cold is a coronavirus and has nothing to do with COVID-2. The other part of what I was getting at over the long-term picture, if this thing flares up again, then you're going to have more and more social unrest. And that's what happened in these other societies. Government could not meet everyone's need. There wasn't enough troops or enough money or enough infrastructure to store. There wasn't enough food or water or clothing. And so that's what has to be a big concern is that if we get whacked again, then you get bitterness and resentment and, and riots and probably an increase in crime. Because if you're starving and your family has no food, you're going to stick somebody up. You're going to have to do something. So hopefully our coping devices will work well enough that we don't have a serious blast. And when you go back and you look at 1917 through 21, it wasn't just 1918. That was a four-year epidemic. It went around the world four times, not once, and caused more upheaval because firemen got sick, police got sick, corpses stacked up, coroners and the medical examiners couldn't get rid of them fast enough. I don't think we're going to be anywhere near that. I think our surge capacity is improving. Yeah. You cannot store up enough stuff for this, but the ability to surge and produce more is important. And Bill Frist, our one great doctor we had in the Senate, he gave a very good presentation in 2005 trying to get us ready for pandemics. You go to YouTube and look up Bill Frist, you can see he really tried hard to get us to gear up for surge as well as storage of stuff. You see, that's the problem that government has. I can understand why four or five years ago, Kwame wasn't willing to spend $15 million on more ventilators because he had no way to justify it. And people would be saying, yeah, but they're starving here and they're dying there and we need money here. How do you allocate your resources? So everything, you know, you put a little here, you put a little there, like the way we run our homes. We have a backup emergency fund for this. You get hit with too many things, you know, then you run out. I'm just hoping we never get to that point. That's what gives me an occasional nightmare. But I do think if we get people accustomed to thinking, ourselves and others, where we have a year to go, once we get a vaccine, people will feel a lot safer, even if it takes time to get it distributed. If we come up with some reliable therapeutics, people will see light at the end of the tunnel. It's not knowing where you are in the tunnel making people so, so nerve-wracking about this. And if those developments don't come soon enough, is there going to be, would you predict, a large surge in mental health issues? Well, yeah, already, from what I understand, in Palm Beach County, uh, prescriptions for benzos and antidepressants are up 25%. The statistics from the World Trade Center Research Group that tracked New York City for an 11-year period found out that the rate of utilization of benzos and antidepressants never went back down. Yeah. It became part of people's coping devices. And then we had all the unexpected fallout. People who had only mild episodes are going to show up with a higher incidence of stroke six months from now. Maybe like with 1918, it led to a higher likelihood of Parkinson's disease for people who had the flu and didn't die, but lived. there are many uncertainties here. And yes, we're going to have a lot of increase in mental health problems, which is really going to affect the primary care docs on the front line helping them have a long-range view, and above all, 
pace themselves so that they don't exhaust themselves to the point now that they can't hang in there over time. I made that mistake when I was running that unit. After I took a couple of mental health days off, rested, rebalanced myself, I could see how you could run yourself into the ground if you weren't pacing yourself. And that's where you have to say no. The doctors are going to have to say, I can't take on any more patients. I can't see any more of this. I, I, I can only do what I can do. And it could be time to rebalance the medical specialties and all because we have a partially socialized system anyway. The idea of I always pushed was in response to reducing some of the costs or debt of your education. Before you specialize, you do two years of primary care. And I think that would improve the communication between primary care and specialists, but it also would bring in a lot of primary care doctors initially to, to address these problems, the terrible shortage we have, the burnouts, all those things. Great idea. What about in terms of access to, to mental health professionals? There would yeah. be a prediction that with, with the surge, more psychological and psychiatric problems secondary to COVID, we may run into some shortages in that arena. But you don't need a psychiatrist for every one of these patients. Primary care doc has a good idea about how to diagnose most anxiety disorders and depression. They're going to be able to cover most of the bases. And then they're going to have to learn to use their PAs or advanced nurses to spend more time with individual patients. Maybe even run some groups for patients in your practice who are anxious, like you might do if you were trying to teach people about cholesterol or diabetes, you might have a class once a month for people and come in and learn about that. And we may have to do more seminars for primary care docs. I'm thinking what we talked about earlier is just by these seminars and just talking to our colleagues and maybe having lunch with them in the hospitals and the like is to reduce the stigma and not make people hesitant. And the doctors who are not comfortable doing mental health interventions learn a few skills and direct in the, in the right direction. We have long talked about how there is a shortage of workforce for mental health, and that needs to be addressed. Fortunately, in the state of Florida, I don't know the exact number right now, but I think it's over 100 psychiatric residency slots have all been filled, which is tremendous. Yeah. It's a step, and it's a process, and the primary and which include the gynecologists, because we tend to forget that for a lot of women, the gynecologists are their primary doc. This needs to be addressed very, very thoroughly. We have good screening instruments now. So many are already using a Beck anxiety or depression scale. You've got any number of inventories that a patient can check off. Even the old Holmes Rocky life stress scale, where you listed all the events that have happened in your life, and if it clicked off a number of points, you knew you were in harm's way. Those scales can help a doctor feel comfortable enough to make a prescription for a drug. And then, depending upon the response, if things are better, you're okay. If they're not, you try something else. But if, if every primary care was comfortable trying two or three different things before feeling a need to make a referral, that would cover a lot of patients. They're just not enough psychiatrists. We used to think that doctors just wouldn't go to therapists. They'd only go to other physicians. My son's practice, a counseling practice in Richmond, Virginia, they started with three guys that got together and they decided they were going to work on resiliency and life coaching and all that sort of thing. Well, now they're up to seven. They even hired an uh, Army psychologist, a woman, 
and he's got several physicians that come to him. He, he always says, Dad, I've got this cardiologist guy. i got a neurosurgeon. I've that's wonderful. That's wonderful. Yeah. So that's very encouraging. We need to move more in that direction, and it's certainly going to be something from this COVID pandemic that's, that's going to And we could certainly organize a couple of seminars for diagnosing anxiety disorders, diagnosing depressive disorders, and diagnosing a psychotic disorder. Most physicians, I think, could have a good base. They, they would feel comfortable with a little additional information, I would guess. I wonder what the physicians listening in feel about that. Okay, well, we'll put that on the calendar. We'll have to okay. do that for sure. So this has been a great session. We, uh, you know, we have one. Oh, that's a hand not asking a question. It's just a yes, agreed like this. Okay. Thank you, everyone, for being here tonight. Thank you, Stefan. Thank you, Abby. Thank you, everyone else, for being part Thank of this. You. Thank you. Great we hope we hear from you more next time. Yes. Okay. Absolutely. This will be posted on the podcast area online, and we'll be back with more in a couple of weeks. So have a great evening. Take care. We'll see you all soon.